Welcome back to Curbside Consult's Statistical Review, where we explore the different aspects of trial design, methodology and statistical analysis in the studies published in NHAM. Our aim is to break down key methodological concepts to help broaden your knowledge and sharpen your skills in critically appraising the medical literature. I'm Dr. Angela Chen, Editorial Fellow at New England Journal of Medicine. If you tuned into the last episode of Curbside Consults, we discussed some of the recent cardiovascular outcome trials related to type 2 diabetes medications with Dr. Marie McDonald, including the Declare Timmy trial, which evaluated the cardiovascular outcomes of the SGLT2 inhibitor dapagliflozin, which was published in the journal in January of this year. If you didn't have a chance to listen to the Curbside Consult episode, that's no problem. We will be summarising the article while we review our topic today. Today, we will be discussing some key concepts related to non-inferiority trials. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. David Harrington. Dr. Harrington is a statistical consultant here at NEJM and Emeritus Professor of Biostatistics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. So many of you will have encountered studies that have utilized non-inferiority trial design. What is interesting with this group of studies specifically related to the cardiovascular outcomes of type 2 diabetes medications is that they are all non-inferiority trials that actually compare an active treatment to placebo. And as we have previously mentioned, this was for safety and was an initiative that was rolled out by the FDA in 2008 after controversies related to other diabetes medications. Now, like the other trials, Declare Timmy was a randomized controlled trial of the SGLT2 inhibitor this time dapagliflozin, and it compared dapagliflozin with placebo. The primary safety outcome of this trial was to demonstrate non-inferiority as compared to placebo related to major adverse cardiovascular events. So with that in mind, let's get started. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about what are non-inferiority trials and what do these aim to show? Non-inferiority trials are used in settings where an agent may have a particular effect, but one is worried about whether the side effects may not be manageable or may be too large in order to justify use of the medication. So non-inferiority trials typically compare a new treatment with a currently available treatment and aim to show that the new treatment is not significantly worse. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the null hypothesis of a non-inferiority trial is that the primary endpoint for the new treatment is worse than the positive control by a Mm pre-specified margin. It's different than the way most of us think of a null hypothesis of no difference. This starts out already assuming that the drug may in fact be too dangerous to use. Rejection of that null hypothesis in the direction of the agent not being worse yields a positive non-inferiority trial that supports the claim that the new treatment is not inferior to the currently available treatment by more than some pre-specified non-inferiority margin. Yeah. And so the main reason why they're used, so It's interesting because this set of trials obviously compared an active treatment to placebo to show that the active treatment was not inferior to placebo um, with regards to cardiovascular um, adverse effects. But routinely, I guess if we're talking about a non-inferiority trial that compares new treatment with an active comparator, why are they designed in this way in the first place? Well, so there are, in most cases, the non-inferiority trials are designed against an active control where there is an effective regimen mm-hmm. that can be used in a given treatment. Mm-hmm. And the new regimen may be slightly less expensive or it mm-hmm. may be more convenient or it may be easier to administer, mm-hmm. but it might have a slightly higher side effect profile. So in those instances, yeah. a non-inferiority trial is used to justify that an agent which is easier to use 
is worth using even if it might be a little bit worse. Now, in this particular trial, testing against a placebo was important because one wanted to know, did this new agent for diabetes, did it increase cardiovascular risk beyond baseline risk Mm -hmm. for patients who would not have been treated? And from these kind of trials, are there any key components of a non-inferiority trials? So the basic structure of the trial is similar in the sense there is a null hypothesis, but it's different. The null hypothesis is that the new agent is allowed to have a little bit higher side effect profile than the agent against which is tested. Mm -hmm. But there is still the fundamental aspects Mm -hmm. of the design that include a sample size which is large enough Mm -hmm. to reject that inferiority hypothesis in favor of non-inferiority and a very careful set of specifications about how the outcome will be measured. Mm -hmm. The difference, the primary difference with a non-inferiority trial is this specification of a non-inferiority margin. So it requires a pre-specification of how much worse would you allow the new agent to be and still find it clinically useful. That's something that certainly I as a trainee always found a little bit difficult to fully understand. Okay, so that also makes sense. And that also brings me to my next question, which is related. Dave, can you tell us a bit about how non-inferiority margins are defined? In Declare Timmy, they set their non-inferiority margin at 1.3. And then secondly, why do we use a one-sided alpha rather than a two-sided alpha to measure these outcomes? So with regard to the first question, the non-inferiority margin plays the same role in a non-inferiority trial as a clinically important difference does Mm -hmm. in a superiority trial. And so it's usually set according to standards in the treatment of a particular disease. Here, these investigators decided that a 30% increased risk of cardiovascular disease would be all right. More than that would not be acceptable. Less than that would be fine. And that's usually based on previous trials, or is that something that the FDA sets, or is it an arbitrary number? Where does that come from? All of that. Okay. So it's based on previous trials. It's based on clinical intuition about how important it would be for to see a particular rate of side effects. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when an agent is headed for approval, Mm -hmm. so the FDA will allow it to be marketed, the FDA does work with the company to set the non-inferiority margin. And then why do they only use a one-sided alpha? In a non-inferiority trial, the primary goal is to show that the agent is not worse. So you're really only interested in Mm -hmm. differences between the new agent, the novel agent, and the established treatment that run in one particular direction. And so what matters most is, is it worse by a certain amount or not? So one cares only about the upper bound of a measured effect, the upper bound of a confidence interval. And so the alpha level is cut in half so that you can only look at one side and declare your result. And from there, how should non-inferiority trials be interpreted? The primary outcome in Declare to Me showed that dapagliflozin was not inferior to placebo in terms of major adverse cardiovascular events. The primary outcome was within the preset non-inferiority margin of 1.3 with a p-value of less than 0.001. Is there anything else we can infer from these findings? For instance, have we shown superiority or is it all that we've shown is in fact non-inferiority? Sometimes. Okay. So that trial does show uh, initially on its analysis Mm -hmm. that um, the agent is not non-inferior, which Mm -hmm. is a bit of a tongue twister, but in fact, it's exactly what the trial was designed to show. Occasionally, in a non-inferiority trial, one finds that not only is an agent not significantly worse, it's actually better than an underlying treatment. And if it's better, 
you can sometimes examine that as a post hoc analysis after you've shown non-inferiority. Okay. Non-inferiority is the important thing, but if it has been established beyond a reasonable doubt, then it's quite reasonable to look to see did the investigator stumble on something that in this case might actually help prevent cardiovascular disease as opposed to simply not cause it. And then when you draw those inferences from the primary study, which is powered for non-inferiority, the superiority calculations, do they have to come before the trial has actually started? You've said that they can do a post hoc analysis, but if that post hoc analysis wasn't pre-specified, can we accept that? So ideally, the possibility of doing a, a superiority analysis after a successful non-inferiority analysis should be pre-specified in the protocol. Okay. In some instances, an agent turns out to have a surprising effect. Yeah. And not only does it turn out to be non-inferior, it surprisingly turns out to be superior to a mm -hmm. degree mm -hmm. that people really never anticipated. Okay. And so in those instances, uh, it's important to recognize that. Now, many people feel that um, you should confirm that superiority mm -hmm. in a second trial. But mm -hmm. if the result is striking, it may be unethical to randomize in a second trial. Yeah, of course. And so that superiority result may be regarded as robust. So what can't a non-inferiority trial show? Well, there are instances where uh, you do show non-inferiority. Mm -hmm. Suppose a non-inferiority margin has been set at 1.3. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it turns out that the upper bound of the confidence interval is 1.2. Okay. So you do establish non-inferiority, but mm -hmm. that's a trial which will not be able to show superiority. I see. Often a trial won't be powered to recognize superiority, just to uh, examine the non-inferiority endpoint. So the main thing is that you can't be assured proving superiority. You may also not have a large enough sample size to be sure that all the possible adverse events are seen in a study where they may be rare. So you have to be careful that just because non-inferiority has been established, it doesn't mean it's non-inferior on every possible side effect yeah, that course. might be possible. Of course. Okay. So we've talked about components of a non-inferiority trial, how a non-inferiority trial is confirmed and what a non-inferiority trial can and can't show. How does one interpret a failed non-inferiority trial? So if we use declare Timmy again as an example and say, for instance, the hypothetical primary outcome was that the primary upper boundary for the non-inferiority was found to be 1.5, so outside of the pre-specified margin of 1.3. Does that mean that dapagliflozin is in fact inferior to placebo? It would suggest that the drug is inferior. Mm -hmm. It would suggest that the drug is yeah. possibly inferior in safety outcomes to the placebo. What it does say is that if the estimated upper bound for the side effect profile is 1.5, mm -hmm. then that implies that the data are consistent with somewhere between a 40 and a 50% increase yeah. in cardiovascular disease. It does not mean that the agent would be worse for everybody. And it does not mean that it absolutely has a 40 to 50% increase. It just means that you can't rule that out. And so that's a potentially dangerous agent. Thanks a lot for listening to our discussion today on the basics of non-inferiority trials. So what are some key takeaways? Well, firstly, non-inferiority trials are typically used to compare a current treatment with a new treatment. The new treatment usually has some benefit to it, such as perhaps fewer side effects. The design is chosen to show that use of the new treatment is not associated with excessively lower efficacy compared with current treatment. And so we can accept this difference in efficacy given the benefits in terms of, say, side effects, as I used in my previous example. 
The declared TIMI and cardiovascular outcome trials related to diabetes are unique as they are evaluating for cardiovascular safety rather than showing that this new drug is more efficacious. So certainly non-inferiority trials can be used both in terms of safety and for efficacy. As with all trials, a non-inferiority trial needs to be adequately powered and to have an adequate sample size. A non-inferiority margin is set at an acceptable clinical level. And this value is defined based on clinical intuition, previous trials, and sometimes by governing bodies such as the FDA. A positive non-inferiority trial can only confirm the primary outcome, whether that be related to efficacy or to safety. And sometimes a non-inferiority trial can show superiority, but this needs to be pre-specified. We need to remember that as with all other trials, a non-inferiority trials are powered and designed to answer the primary outcome. And it does not mean, for instance, that all possible adverse events have potentially been addressed. And finally, a failed non-inferiority trial suggests that the risks of whatever the primary measure is outside of what has been specified. And typically, this further increase in risk is outside of what is clinically accepted. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of Curbside Consult's Statistical Review. I'd like to thank Dr. David Harrington again for joining us in discussion. Also, thank you to our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, which includes Karen Buckley, Carl Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to Dr. Angela Castellanos and Dr. Amanda Fernandez, my co-editorial fellows at NEJM this year, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hammondvik. Because this is a new series and we're trying something new, we want your feedback. So please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts or feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resident 360 website. We're also accessible via various social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram and Facebook via the nejm.org pages. I'm Dr. Angela Chen, Editorial Fellow at NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.